people are never going to understand how critical this particular time in history is. We have $7.7 trillion worth of economic events that are going to hit America in the gut. This is An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun, President and CEO of Private Wealth Consultants, the free market voice, free market voice. of the U.S., enhancing and protecting private wealth. Gary Rathbun has over 30 years of experience in making the best choices for you to keep more of what you earn. It's life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-reliance. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. This is our country. Greetings and welcome again to An Economy of One. I am your host, Gary Rathbun. You know, back in 2013... Almost, uh, it's about exactly two years ago, we had a big discussion in this country about the national debt. And back then, it was $16.7 trillion. The interesting thing was, uh, this was when all the arguments were going on about sequester and and quantitative easing and government shutdowns and, and that kind of stuff. But... What had happened was Treasury Secretary Jack Lew uh, was employing what he called extraordinary measures. And those extraordinary measures caused the national debt to be frozen for 109 days. In other words, for 109 days, our debt never went up. And there were a lot of people asking questions, including uh, Michelle Bachman and and other Congress members of Congress, to to find out what the heck is going on. You cooking the books over there, Treasury, or or what? Well, it turns out those extraordinary measures were were all kinds of things. There was a one time uh, big dividend from uh, Fannie Mae. There was suspension of uh, federal government payments. Uh, to the tune of $80 million a, a month. And uh, they even suspended uh, pension contributions for government employees during that time. All these extraordinary measures in order not to default on the debt. And uh, eventually Congress raised the debt. But if you remember, the thing that, I, I, that was extraordinary back then is they, they didn't raise the debt limit per se what they said was we're not going to put a limit on the debt until march 15th 2015 they kicked the can down the road a couple of years well guess what march 15th 2015 obviously has came and went and what's happened is the debt froze on march 15th and it hasn't moved since We've gone about 112, 113 days now without going, technically, going one more penny in debt. New record. So we're stuck at a little over $18 trillion. And get this, the statutory debt limit is $18 trillion, $113 billion, $80,959.35. How we got the 35 cents on there, I will never know. But uh, we've hit the ceiling, and nothing's been done. Nothing's been done since March 15th. So the debt has not increased. Where, where, where's the, the government spending? 
Where's the spending? Why is that not being recorded? Somebody cooking the books again, maybe. Are they taking extraordinary measures again? Probably. But it's interesting to me that nobody is talking about this. You haven't seen this anywhere. You haven't heard it anywhere. Apparently that argument a couple years ago was just too painful to remember, and we don't want to get into it again. But pay attention. It's frozen. What are the extraordinary measures? And more importantly, what are the consequences of those extraordinary measures going to be? No one's talking about this. We'll see what happens. Now, that being said, everybody knows, according to the the leading Keynesian econo- uh, economics professor out there and uh, New York Times uh, editorial writer, that the solution to debt is obviously more debt. Got to have more debt. If, if a little bit of debt is good, a whole lot of debt's got to be better. And one of the Federal Reserve uh, banks, Minneapolis, in Minneapolis, the president, uh, uh, what's his name, Noriana Coker Lakota, said it'd be a good idea if the U.S. government issued more debt, as this would help lift the economy's long-run neutral rate of interest. Now, you can say that because most people don't know what the heck a neutral rate of interest is. But a neutral rate of interest is when the Fed policy is neither stimulating nor restraining the money supply, hence growth in the economy. And what's concerning the Fed, what what concerns Janet Yellen, I'm going to touch on that in a second, what concerns her is she's got nothing left in the toolbox. Interest rates are at zero. She's got to raise interest rates. And this is a way, according to this guy, of raising interest rates, issuing more debt, will raise the interest rates, and that'll give them some leeway when the economy starts to uh, falter even more to lower interest rate again. And uh, so now, the, the, the interesting thing, he was speaking in Frankfurt uh, to some conference where all these uh, economic wonks go, but... Uh, he, he did uh, a little bit later in his talk say, now, don't get me wrong. I'm not advocating issuing more debt. But I'm just saying the Fed would probably really appreciate it if they could. So that's how they're thinking. That's how they're thinking. The, the economy is slowing down. We're seeing numbers that are, are less than stellar. I don't think we're... We're going into a recession or a depression or anything like that at this point. But Janet Yellen, chairman of the Federal Reserve, just isn't seeing the numbers she wants to see to feel comfortable raising interest rates. Now, I've said for a long time we should eliminate the Federal Reserve and let interest rates free float. Just let the market set the interest rates. It will reach an equilibrium point at some point in the future. Be some wild swings in the meantime, no question, but eventually it would level out and uh, reflect 
what's going on in the economy. But in the last few years, there's been a record amount of job openings. Since uh, May of 2009, we've had a 125% increase in job openings. That's 20% higher than the pre-recession 2007. The problem is that new hires during that same time frame are only up 35%. Where'd all the rest of it go? Where are the job hirings? Uh, why is there so many job openings and not enough job hirings? So there's a mismatch between demand uh, for labor and the ability or willingness of labor to meet that demand. Now, a lot, of, a lot of factors go into that. It could be wages. We know that wages have, have not kept up with uh, the job openings or the job uh, fillings. Um, it could be skill set. It could be that workers are, are just not qualified for a lot of these jobs. And, of course, it could be negative incentive. Back when I was in school in economics, we had a saying, if you pay people not to work, they won't work. And when we have weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks of unemployment benefits, and then it's it's virtually check the box and sign here to get on Social Security disability benefits, we're paying a lot of people not to work. So consequently, people won't work. Now, that being said, I'm not trying to convey a negativeness on the growth of the economy or where the economy is going. I'm just saying we're still out of balance. And it's because of government intervention, government trying to uh, make the economy grow, trying to create the numbers and the data that will allow these people to get reelected. But when you start digging into the data, it's just not there. Now, that being said, President Obama come out and he promises economic boon for us. He pro he's got a plan. And uh, apparently he thinks it's a good plan to make the economy uh, grow tremendously, have wages expand tremendously, and everybody be happy in the days full of sunshine. We'll talk about that plan next. It's an economy of one with Gary Rathbun. Now, back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Well, President Obama has a new plan, and he promises an economic boon because of that new plan. You ready? He's decided that it would greatly, greatly help the country if he raised the threshold for salaried people from... $23,660 a year to $50,440 a year. Now, what's that mean? 
What that means is if a person is on salary for a company, any company, and they make less than $50,440 a year, any time over 40 hours in that week, the law will require the employer to pay time and a half. Now, traditionally, people on salary are in management. Um, they have supervisory uh, duties. And generally speaking, they put in more than 40 hours a week. And I'll get into the reasons for that in a minute. But the fact is that from an employer standpoint, when you have a management team, when you have administrators, salary helps you plan your yearly expenses, and it levels the cost for those employees each month. Now, they came out and said, this uh, Labor Secretary, Thomas Perez, said that about 5 million American workers will see a big increase in money. Okay, that's first statement, wrong. But anyway, let's, let's continue what he says. Big increase in money or, or, and this is an important or, in some cases, time. <laughs> that's a nice way of saying you're going to get your hours cut and you may be out of a job because employers are not just going to absorb that pay. There's not a, a, uh, a big cookie jar out there where employers can reach in and just grab some more money to pay time and a half for some of these hours. Now, they're anticipating workers will get another $1.2 to $1.3 billion in their pockets as a result of this rule. Wrong again, Tom. Wrong again. Now, they're saying it'll, it'll mainly affect fast food and retail industries. No, no, it's going to affect virtually every business. And, of course... The employers are the bad guys. The, the business owners are the bad guys. And they're calling the fact that employers have salaried employees, that if they work more than 40 hours, they're calling that a loophole, that the employer is taking advantage of a loophole. Now, Perez admits, with certain managers working less times, that means more employers will hire more workers. Wrong again, Tom. They will find ways to eliminate those needs. Remember we talked a while back about McDonald's being forced to, or uh, people trying to force McDonald's to pay $15 an hour, and they're already putting in uh, ordering machines. You can go into McDonald's and uh, touch a, uh, a touch screen, place your order, run your debit card or credit card through there, and then go pick up your food. They're eliminating people. They're not going to pay $15 an hour. In order to pay those higher wages, an employer has to receive higher value. It's very common to think that the employer has a ton of profits and they can just take money out of profits and give it to the workers. But those profits are what fuel future growth. 
So once again, this administration is showing that they are consistent in passing regulation or executive orders that will cut people's wages, cut people's hours, create more part-time jobs, and will continue to stifle the growth of the economy. Now, as I was researching this, two things came to mind. One, the uh, director of White House Domestic Policy Council, uh, Cecilia Munoz, uh, made sure she put out there that they don't need Congress's approval to do this. It's totally within the department's regulatory authority to do this. So Congress isn't even going to be considered in this. The other thing to keep in mind is there's always unintended consequences. Now, I've talked a little bit about uh, some of them where hours are going to get cut, people are going to get laid off, new people are not going to be hired, uh, future capital is not going to be saved for growth. But one thing that uh, uh, I found out that is very interesting, uh, a lot of employers, including myself, has implemented a, a concept called flex time for their employees. So my employees can take one day a month during the winter or two days a month during the summer on flex time. Doesn't count toward vacation or sick time. It uh, is just flex time, and they can make up the hours in the same pay period. This overtime rule will eliminate flex time because... I'll have to pay them overtime if they put in some extra hours. If they put in 41 hours this week so they can put in 39 next week, I have to pay them overtime. And uh, that's going to be a big deal. We'll see how it it comes out. But uh, there's always unintended consequences with these kind of rules. Coming up next, Dr. Desmond Lockman, a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. We're going to chat with him a little bit about what's going on in Greece. We'll talk about that next. Gary Raspin, an economy of one. Now, back to an economy of one with Gary Raspin. Joining me now is Dr. Desmond Lockman. He's a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and former deputy director in the International Monetary Fund's Policy Development and Review Department. Dr. Desmond, welcome to An Economy of One. Thank you for inviting me. I, I appreciate you taking the time. Been reading your your articles and your commentary uh, around Greece. Uh, as you know, Greece has been in the headlines all day, every day for about a week or so now. And... Uh, I wanted to have you on give uh, and get your take on on Greece. You you look at things a little bit different than uh, some of the stuff I've read. And uh, what do you think's happening over there? What 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 what's your opinion of what's happening, I guess? Well, what's happening is a total disaster, you know, from an economic point of view. Mm-hmm. If you look at where Greece is today, it's very similar to what happened to the US during the Great Depression. So what we've seen over the last six years 
is that their output has collapsed by 25%. Uh Their unemployment rate is around about 27%. And they have more than half of their youth out of work. So what that's given rise to is a really very difficult political situation where there's been a fairly strong backlash against the policies that got them where they are. So you've now got a government on the far left who is standing up to their creditors. Well, you know, that's kind of what I wanted to ask you, because, you know, sitting over here in our our nice air-conditioned office, and and we see Greece kind of as a a small economy that it's really not affecting us too much. What what got them into this position, and what kind of effect is that going to have on the United States? Well, it's quite a complicated question, but, you know, if you strip it down to the essence, what happened is that Greece abandoned its own currency Mm -hmm. and went into the euro. So it really took on the currency that was being used by the Germans and the other northern European countries. Right. But what it didn't do is it didn't play by the rules of that game, which meant that if you lost your own currency, you really had to keep your budget in good shape. You had to keep your economy competitive. So what they did is they went on a spending spree, and by 2010, their budget deficit was as wide as 15% of GDP, which is just a huge budget deficit. And they lost about 20% of competitiveness. Now, the trouble is that if you don't have your own currency and you've got those kind of imbalances, they're impossible to deal with without being able to devalue. So what the creditors did, the IMF and the EU, they only gave Greece the money if Greece would tighten its belts very sharply. So as Mm -hmm. Greece tightened its belt, the economy went into a nosedive. And, you know, that's where we are today, that um, they're 25% down. They have got a huge mountain of debt that they haven't uh, managed to work off. And they're just being cut off now by their creditors. Now, what did they, when when you say they went on a spending spree, what they spend it on? Was it entitlements? Was it really yep. advanced infrastructure? I mean, all the things that government can spend money on, um, where did they spend it all? Well, if it were on infrastructure, that would have been great, you know, because at least that would have made the country a lot more productive mm-hmm. and they could have grown their way out of their debt. But no, it went on things like wages, like pensions, like a bloated public sector. That's really part of the problem that there's a structural problem in Greece, you know, the last 30, 40 years, it's been very much a clientelist society, you know, where patronage is Mm -hmm. fairly common, a lot of corruption in government, but you've got a bloated government that really saps any vitality out of that economy. And then just a whole lot of restrictions on people being able to form businesses or deal in really competitive kind of way. So the economy is not in good shape from a structural point of view, 
But then when they got themselves into this deep trouble and being in a fixed exchange rate really has done them in. Now, we're, we're talking with Dr. Desmond Lockman. He's a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and former deputy, deputy director in the International Monetary Fund's Policy Development and Retoot, uh, uh, Review Department. What, what I mean, you mentioned businesses having a tough time uh, developing stuff. Is that regulatory or is it are, are they just taxed to the point where they it's not worth it to to open a business? Well, both that it, in order to get anything done in Greece, it's really very difficult. You've got to jump through a whole lot of hoops that there are a whole lot of government interference. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, the taxes are levied on a very small group of people. Others manage to evade the tax. So if you're trying to do things above board, you're really going to be asphyxiated with the taxes as well. So this is an economy that's really got no dynamism. And that is part of what the creditors are wanting to do is they want to get Greece to modernize its economy. So what they're insisting on is they've been insisting on pension reform or labor market reform or improving the tax administration or privatizing a lot of the stuff that the government's involved with. Uh, But they've met with a lot of resistance from the Greeks. Now, one of the things that uh, uh, an article you wrote um, that I I read through, you're you're an advocate of Greece. uh, I don't know if you say leaving the European Union, but certainly leaving the euro. Yeah, no, I wouldn't want Greece to leave the European Union, but I would want them to exit from the euro. That my view is that the excessive amount of budget tightening without having monetary policy, low interest rates or a cheap exchange rate to offset that effect, because as you raise taxes and cut expenditures, what you're doing is you're putting a very negative force on the economy. You want to offset it with something. So normally a country in this position would pump up their money supply and let their currency depreciate so that their export sector would boom, and that would offset the negative effect on household spending you know, from high taxes and cutting public expenditure. Greece can't do that in a euro straitjacket. And what is going on right now is that the creditors are telling Greece to tighten their budget more over the next few years to try to balance the uh, the books. And my point is we've tried that. You know, we've done that for the last five or six years, and it's led us to this pass. What makes them think that this time is going to be different? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the – the, if they do that, and, and let's say just for argument that they, they they develop their own currency called the new drachma or or just the drachma, whatever, are they too far down the road? I mean, can they inflate their, their way out of this without becoming a, a Zimbabwe or a Weimar, well, Weimar Republic or something? Well, it might be late in the day you know, for them to bring the currency back, particularly if it's not supported by the international community, it's not supported by loans from the IMF, from the Mm -hmm. European Union. If they go it alone and they've got a government quite as incompetent as this government, then they will be off to the races on inflation. But this is their only chance. 
the only chance of having any hope of getting growth mm -hmm. would be for them to become competitive. So what one would want is for them to exit the euro, but for it to be done in a well-managed way with international support. But I'm afraid that this does not look like where we're heading. You know, we're heading, we've let this thing go too far. Right. And politically, this place is just crumbling. You know, we, once again, we over here in the United States, we look at Greece and it's not, not a huge economy, nowhere near the size of ours or anything like that. But yet... What's happening there and what might happen going forward could have some real ripple effects for the United States economy, couldn't it? Well, this depends very much on you know, what the European Central Bank does and how well it's managed. The risk that we've got to be concerned about is that when people see Greece leaving the euro, they'll realize that being a member of the euro isn't irrevocable that that can be reversed. So this will focus the market's attention on places like Italy, Spain, Portugal, that have got very high debt levels, very low growth, very worrisome politics. And unless that is properly handled, you know, we could get contagion to those countries. And if that occurred, then we would have to worry in the United States because those countries, you know, particularly Italy, is very large, and if we had a real European crisis, we wouldn't be able to escape it much the same way as the Europeans couldn't escape our layman crisis. Right, right. Well, we got about a about a minute left, so I, I'm going to hit you with kind of a, uh, a a toss out of left field. I've been reading a couple articles where, you know, maybe Russia is going to come in and bail them out. And today I saw a headline that, you know, what maybe China. And their new infrastructure bank that they formed will bail them out. Do you think that's a likely scenario of China or Russia getting involved and kind of being the uh, the savior here for the moment? Well, that is really the risk. You know, from a geopolitical point of view, we've really got to be concerned that if we allow Greece to become a failed state, they'll turn to the Russians or they'll turn to the Chinese. And mm -hmm. this isn't simply fear mongering or hypothetical thinking, the current government has had very close relations with Moscow, that this prime minister has been to Moscow on a number of occasions. What they're talking about right now is building a Russian pipeline that would take Russian gas through Greece to Europe. This uh, is a real danger that if Greece fails, Putin will step in there because he'd be, have a real interest in getting involved in the Balkans. This place is really very strategic. Mm -hmm. As we saw, you know, one can recall that in 1947 with the Truman Doctrine, that is where it all began, is that the Americans and the British realized that you can't afford to let Greece go out of the Western camp. Yeah, and, and Putin is a, a master chess player, so I, I'm, I'm sure he's... He's playing about three moves ahead of of uh, everybody else. So, and he's uh, also playing the long game. That's right. That's absolutely right. Well, we're speaking with Dr. Desmond Lockman. He's a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Dr. Desmond, I really appreciate your time tonight. Really appreciate you coming on with us, and I hope we can tap you on the shoulder uh, again sometime soon. Coming up, we got a obituary for a 167-year-old institution. And... 
perfect example of where our future may lie. Gary Raspin, an economy of one. Now, back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Well, this week we experienced the, I guess, the death of something that near and dear to my heart. It's an uh, old American tradition by the name of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. For those of you that have you ever seen the movie um, Trading Places with Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd, where... Uh, they get back at these these two rich guys um, that tried to cheat them out of money. Uh, well, and they did it at the trading pit. And the Chicago Mercantile Exchange has been around for 167 years. It, it first opened in 1848. And it was an, what they call an open outcry uh, trading pit. So people would go there. Traders would go there. You had to be licensed to go there and registered and that kind of stuff. But uh, you could trade grains, metals, orange juice, uh, all kinds of stuff. And it was open trading, meaning that that you would trade uh, in person by essentially yelling at each other and and making deals. And it was very energetic. I don't know if any of you have ever went to Chicago and witnessed that, but it's it's very exciting to watch. In fact, they even made a game about it. Remember the game Pit? And uh, Pit, it was a wild card game where, where as a player, you try to corner the market on, on a particular commodity. Um, 167 years old, and it closed this week. Now, I'm all in favor of, of uh, digital... Uh, technology and modern ways of doing business, but it, it's still still just a little piece of you uh, goes away. It's tradition uh, in our business, and it, it's sad to see it go. Now, it, it, it was only in recent history, only doing about 1% of the, the uh, futures volume, but uh, still, still sad to see it go. Uh, it'll never be back. And realistically, we don't need it. I understand that. But 167 years ago this week, 1848, Chicago Mercantile Exchange opened, and now it's gone. Farewell. Going to miss it. You know, I did come across something this week that I wanted to share with you. And it's been out there for a while. Uh, For some reason, I just... Didn't come across it until I saw some new action on it today. And it gave me hope for our future. There's a 12-year-old YouTube sensation out there by the name of C.J. Pearson. And he rose to fame in uh, February of this year with a YouTube video uh, essentially uh, chewing on President Obama about his leadership qualities. And, uh, of course, the YouTube went viral. And the kid is very articulate. I mean, he's 12 years old. Very articulate. Very smart. I don't believe his parents are putting him up to this. I think he's just a bright kid. 
And because of that, he's continually put out other YouTube videos of his talks. Well, recently, he put out a YouTube asking uh, George Takai. You remember George Takai? He was Ensign Sulu on the old Star Trek uh, back in the 60s. And uh, uh, George Takai came out with a, a video or a comment in the last week or so criticizing Justice Clarence Thomas for his vote on the Supreme Court in the gay uh, marriage issue. Now, it, George got his vote. It was 5-4. He won. But yet, he's criticizing uh, Clarence Thomas. Well, C.J. Pearson came out with another video asking uh, George Takai to apologize for that. Well, there's a liberal Twitter personality out there known as Mona Hussein Obama. And uh, she launched a series of insults. In fact, if you look at this kid's video, a lot of people are just slamming the poor kid. Uh, But she came out and started tweeting uh, insults and threats to this kid. And uh, she essentially said that... um, uh, they they were uh, uh, your whole family has been bowing down to white people. C.J. Pearson is a twelve year old African American, and uh, then she went from that to a threat, saying to him, "We wish we could switch Trayvon's life for yours." Now, can you imagine an adult saying that to a twelve year old? A twelve year old. Well, it, it it messed him up a little bit, and and. Uh, he went offline, but only temporarily. And he came back online. He said, after much thought and consideration, I've decided to press forward and continue for what I believe in. Mona's hate has only strengthened my resolve and encouraged me to continue to do what I love and what I do best. Even better, his family decided to file suit against this woman for cyberbullying and threats. Good for them. Good for the kid, good for the parents. I'm proud of that. That gives me some hope, if you will, for what's going forward. A 12-year-old kid has more guts than most people out there to stand up for what he believes and put himself out there. There's an example for you and me to follow. 12 years old. Look him up. C.J. Peterson. Look him up on YouTube, look at some of his posts, and you will uh, be as energized as I am. C.J. Pearson. I want you to have a great day. Be an individual, be self-reliant, be an economy of one. I'm Gary Rathman. We'll see you next time. This is our country. The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC-registered investment advisor.